I want you to imagine something. You're having dinner with family or close friends, anyone who have known you most of your life, and you announce to them that you are now following a new religious leader. And so they ask you, well, when can we meet this leader? And you say, well, he's really not with us anymore. He died, but he's alive, especially in my heart. And so they ask him, well, how did he die? And you respond, well, it was by lethal injection down at the state penitentiary. How do we know that your family's probably not going to be too excited about this new religious leader? Now, we talked last week about the atonement and what Christ did for us on the cross. And I gave you that hypothetical situation because it was real for our first century predecessors. Because in Roman Greek mindset, which was a dominant culture of the day, and in the Jewish mindset, anyone who died by crucifixion would never be worthy of respect. And yet... This sect of Jewish people and Gentiles, very quickly, after the, Acts chapter 2, were lauding and worshiping this man who had been executed. Now, obviously the resurrection changes everything, but I, I want us to think about why is it that all through the New Testament, the cross comes up over and over and over again, and this analysis of what happened on the cross. The early Christians and then us today now as continuing their work continually talk about the event of Jesus's death. And we do so because we're differentiating it from every other death that's ever occurred. In the natural, it was a death of shame. It would be like someone in our cultural context uh, being being punished by the government in an electric chair or by lethal injection or by a firing squad. And we would think, well, how could a person like that be God? And this is why what happened to Jesus on the cross is something that we continually think about, analyze, apply to our lives, search the scriptures, and the Holy Spirit gives more and more illumination to us about this. The atonement is so important because the atonement lets us know that the cross made a difference. The death of Jesus was not just part of the story. The death of Jesus is the story. Today, we're really comfortable with the concept of the cross. We we wear jewelry that lets people indicate that story special to us. Crosses that are put up as decorative pieces mean something. In more symbolic worship, uh, liturgical worship, people actually look to a physical cross to focus their faith on Jesus. But I just had to take you back and give you the modern equivalent to let you know that the cross originally was scandalous. It was shameful. And any man 
who was crucified on the cross was not even worthy of a proper death. And now here the believers of Jesus are saying he is not just worthy of respect. He is worthy of eternal worship. This is why the message of the atonement is so important. So let's just review very quickly and if you, uh, last week's sermon, and you can always go listen to it and go online to the church at IndianLake.com, as millions of people around the world do every week. And you're laughing. Okay. Oh, my goodness. I get no respect. All right. Here, here's, here's the definition we went over last week, and, and for those of you who weren't here, I'm going to make you fill in the blanks for this. Definition of the atonement, the restoration of the broken relationship between God and man. I think that is the most helpful definition. The restoration of the broken relationship between God and man. Now, the word itself, atonement, this is not in your notes, but you may want to write this down, literally means making one. Making one. It's, it's a removal of the distance. It's a removal of the gap. And the Bible gives many metaphors that help us understand this concept. And today I want to give you different perspectives on the atonement. A lot of people call these theories of the atonement, but I don't like that phrase at all because it sounds like a scientific word. But if you ever study theology, there I told you. So instead of theories of the atonement or metaphors of the atonement, I think perspectives of the atonement is the best way to look at this. And today we're going to look at the ones that are very clear in the Bible. And everything I'm going to share with you today is straight from the scripture. In fact, we're going to look at a lot of scripture. And what I want to do is I want to deepen your understanding of the cross, deepen your understanding of Jesus, deepen your affection for Jesus. But also, I want to um, suggest to you that whatever perspective on the atonement you emphasize is more effective for different cultures and different settings. This is not minimizing the gospel. This is not hiding anything. It's simply the recognition that as God is revealing his word through the Holy Spirit, we interpret the scripture through cultural context, and today we are in a cultural context. And so simply, depending on our temperament and depending on the era which we live in, we identify with one perspective on the atonement maybe more than another. One theologian used the metaphor of golf clubs. Said the different perspectives on the atonement is like your golf clubs. Sometimes you get out the driver. Sometimes you get out the sand wedge. Sometimes you get out the putter. And I suppose that if you had a golf ball stuck in a sand pit, you could use a, a driver to get it out. But the most effective way is to use a wedge. And so it is that the Bible gives us this whole scope of perspectives on the atonement, on the way God is redeeming man, and depending on who we are and who we're talking to, there may be a most effective way. This is one of the reasons that Peter and Paul agreed. Peter said, I'm going to go to the Jews. Paul said, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. The message was always the same, but the perspective and the angle was different because it was received differently culturally. Never changes the essence of God. Never changes his his transcendent qualities and his untouchable attributes. But it helps us understand 
God's plan to make mankind, humanity, one with him again. It always is through Jesus. It's never through another. It's not through another religion. It's not through another prophet. There is none other qualified but Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, the sinless one. Let's be clear about that straight up. Because if it's not about Jesus, then it's not complete and it's not powerful over sin. So here's the first one that I want to share with you today. The ransom perspective. The ransom perspective. And one of the strengths of the, the golf set of golf clubs metaphor is that it keeps all of us from becoming um, overattached to an atonement perspective that we like best. Okay, so, so it kind of takes away that tension. We say there's this full scope and we don't have to focus on one area, but the Holy Spirit can lead us into one. The ransom perspective, this is one of the oldest in Christian tradition because Jesus used this himself when he was anticipating his death. You guys ready for the Bible, huh? All right, good. Like, forget all this talk. Let's get into the real stuff. Mark 10, 45. Jesus said this, for even the son of man, which was a name, another name for the son of God, the Messiah, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word, his life as a ransom. This was a word that was very relatable in Greco-Roman culture because, unfortunately, slavery was a part of life then as it has been formally part of the world until, until a little under 200 years ago, a little over 200 years ago. Now, we, we do have subtle slavery, as you know, in human trafficking and in systems that oppress people, but government-sanctioned slavery was the common practice of the day. And so what is a ransom? A ransom is when you pay the right amount of money to free someone else. Previous cultures who had been at, had witnessed transactions in which compensation had been given for people, I know it's hard for us to understand, could understand that, wow, this is a way we can understand how Jesus and what he did for the atonement. He's ransoming us. He's paying this price so that we could be free. Who can relate to that today? And these are things that I just reflected on. And I think people who have been around addiction, people who have been around abusive situations, people who have been in overwhelming debt, and very suddenly things change. They're they're set free of their addiction. They go to a program that sets them free, and in a short amount of time, they learn freedom. They're taken out of an abusive situation. Maybe that they've somehow received, this isn't usually what happens, but a large sum of money that let them get out of overwhelming debt or someone paid the debt for them. And there's all types of stories, both historically and contemporarily, contemporary, that's not a word, contemporarily, but in contemporary times about this idea of ransom. I thought about 
those of us, this is really common in movies, but probably not as common in, in everyday life, who experienced romance through a first date, and they were just single, and then boom, they knew after that first date, all right, this is the one. All the single ladies say, oh, yeah. And no, I'm not going to sing that jingle either. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20 says this. Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Those of us who understand, we were bound. And all of us were bound to sin. All of us. But I think maybe for some of us who have understood this dramatic very quick change. This life was going one direction, then boom, one thing happened, and everything changed. Can relate to the ransom perspective of the atonement. First Corinthians seven twenty three says this: You were bought by a, you were bought at a price. Think about that. You were bought at a price. Jesus purchased you. Jesus bought you. This is easy for the. Jewish people to understand because they were in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And through the Passover lamb, they were bought with a price and they were set free. That's why Peter wrote this. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18 says this. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty ways of life, inherited from your fathers. This was written to Jewish people talking about the old system, the Jewish way not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without defect or blemish. Here's the next perspective that I want to emphasize today. And by the way, these are not limited to the four I share. These are the most traditional, and, and these are the safest, but there could be others. The sacrifice perspective Write it down. It is the most common image in Scripture about the atonement. It's really what I emphasized in my sermon last week. Replacing the old system of sacrifice. And I think that law enforcement people understand this. But there is a price to be paid for our sin, and someone has to pay the price. So lawyers, judges... Police officers, middle school principals, understand that if there's not a punishment, then there is no order. And I, I believe that younger generations struggle with this because they don't like to sense a God of wrath or God of anger. But the scripture talks about a God who sacrifices himself. He becomes the punishment for us. And he appeases, he appeases the holiness of God where sin has to be atoned for. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 talks about this Jesus who is both the high priest and the sacrifice. It's both at the same time. Isn't this amazing? Talking about the old way of doing things in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, 
Now every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Oh, can you feel the gravity of that statement in verse 11? Religion was futile. The old system never changed the heart. Never changed the heart. Even if he did everything exactly like the Torah said, it didn't change your heart. Only the spirit, only grace can change your heart. It never took away sin. Verse 12. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. That's a place of authority. He's now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he was perfected. He has perfected forever those who are sanctified. That one offering is the cross. Therefore, this act of shame, this act of embarrassment, this act of judicial justice that is only reserved for the worst of criminals, we as believers say, no, it was a one-time act that changed everything for us and everything for the world. Romans chapter 8. Verse 3 and 4 says, what the law could not do since it was limited. Oh, that's 834. So that's a good scripture, though. I like that scripture, but it's not the one I was thinking of. That's the importance of a hyphen, right? Three hyphen, four, not 34. Okay. So you got to listen very good here. What the law could not do. This is Romans 8, 3, and 4. What the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the flesh like ours under sin's domain and as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Jesus was our sacrifice. And those of us who are around rules and around justice, we can really relate to that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become righteousness, the righteousness of God in him. It's really a beautiful story. Our familiarity um, causes us to answer it like we're, we're answering a flashcard or taking a test. And we forget the beauty of the story. God came and became our punishment um, God came and became our sacrifice. He's our substitute. So good. Here's the third one that I want to emphasize today. The reconciliation perspective. Now, who relates best to this? I'm going to say our culture does. I, I think that as we are presenting the gospel to the culture that we live in, in North America, to a new nation that does not have a propensity to follow the Bible or the ways of the Lord, that emphasizing this perspective on the atonement is the most effective way to open doors in the gospel. Because we are a relational people. We're about relationship. We're about knowing and being authentic and being real. And this is the perspective on the atonement that I believe our culture 
can receive the best, and more specifically, the demographic you hear a lot about in our culture, the millennials, which are roughly people in their late 30s and under right now, certainly because of the way they were educated and the way that they were raised by their parents and because of their shared life experiences, they're going to relate most to the reconciliation perspective. In the same way Jesus lived his life and he would restore the outcast, the people who didn't fit into the religious system, the prostitute, the leper, the tax collector. And he reached out and he said, no, come to me. Come to me. You're part, you can be part of the story. He, he called the unlikely and said, you follow me. Those who are unqualified, those who don't fit into the social structures of our day, those who don't fall into the categories that you would think a religious person would. Jesus said, come on, come on into my, to my kingdom. Come on into my world. And this, this is the message that is palatable, digestible to our generation. Does that mean we ever ignore the others? Never, because it's a scripture. I'm just, I'm just telling you, here's a good golf club for you to use to start out. And I also think that it may help some of you. It may help some of you give language. In our Forward 101, typically Pastor Deborah teaches us, we talk about the broken relationship. The broken relationship between God and man as an entryway, as the best metaphor, as the best perspective on the atonement. So now, here's the support of Scripture. And there's there's multitude of support of Scriptures. Ephesians 2.16 says this. He did this so that he might reconcile. Is that not a beautiful word? Both to God in one body through the cross and put hostility to death by it. God's here to reconcile people with him, reconcile people with each other. Colossians 1.20 says it this way, and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, sometimes the scriptures, are, they're, they're, they're so beautiful and they're so poetic, we, we don't, Think about the words of the digest. Think about this. He's reconciling everything to himself, making peace. This is the heart language of our generation. I'm telling you, the heart language of our generation leads us back to Jesus. If we can see that. Now, how does he do that? There's no other way. Through the cross, through the atonement, through what Jesus did. There's no other way. We, we don't reconcile everything to God through education. We don't do it through government policy. We don't do it through any form of humanism. It's through Christ. It's through Jesus. And Jesus may, he may infect those areas. He may make our education better, our policy better. He may make our community better. But he is the one. He is the source. He is the only one that's pure. He's the only one that's holy. He's the only one who is not tainted by sin. He's the only one who can perfectly do all things without corruption. And so it's his spirit, his teachings, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit through him. Things on earth are things even in heaven. Reconciling the whole universe, the whole cosmos. Our God is bigger than that. 2 Corinthians 
chapter 5, verse 18 and 19 says this. Everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Now look at this. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. That's a message our world needs. That's a message families need. That's a message parents and children need. That's a message that clashing cultures need. The, the divide that there is. All the different areas of our country that are divided, that cause disrest and mistrust and brokenness. God wants to reconcile those. And guess who he's given that ministry of reconciliation to us? Us. We're it, guys. We're it. We're his choice. If I was God, I wouldn't choose me. I wouldn't choose you either. But he did. And when we make sure he's at the place he needs to be in our life, he's number one, he's in charge, he's supreme, then we partner with him in bringing his heart to every situation we're in. We bring his heart to our family, his heart to our workplace, his heart to our city, his heart to every aspect that I could even list to you. God wants to infect his heart of reconciliation and peace to all things. And I don't know about you, but that gives me great hope for the future. I don't want to just take up oxygen on this planet as it continues to de uh, degrade and become worse and worse and worse. I want to make a difference in the areas God has let me participate in. I want to see more light and more love and more kindness and more peace. And I know that I can't do that through my own ability, but I know the God who gave his life so that could happen. So we can make a difference. We can. We can bring this message of reconciliation. And that perspective on the atonement brings us so much life. Here's the last one that I'm going to talk about today, certainly not the only one, the victory perspective. And who relates to this? Beth, you can come make your way up here. The victory perspective. Who relates to this? Everyone. Everyone relates to this. Because everybody wants to be on the winning team. I think we especially relate to this here in the South where we want our college football teams to win and our race cars to win. And some of you parents, boy, you really wanted your um, box cars, Awana box cars, what do they call those things, <laughs> to win. What do they call Awana Grand Prix? Pinewood Derby cars to win. And winning can be really subjective, but not with God. Because we see through the revelation of his scripture what Jesus said himself and what is fleshing out in the future in Revelation that at the end God's he is going to win because he has already won he is the victor you know when Jesus was on the cross they made a mockery of him they put a crown of thorns upon his head and they, they put a robe on him to mock him 
And this was to ridicule him and to make fun of him and to cause his, and to call his life insignificant and to call his life as a waste, as something that it was a joke. But little did those men understand that they were prophesying over Jesus, that what happened on the cross, what happened on when the atonement took place on the cross was not an accident, was not an afterthought, was not a plan B. It was God's victory over sin. It was God's victory over death. It was God's victory over everything evil and everything wrong with this world. When Jesus voluntarily laid down his life on the cross, when he gave up everything, it was not a day of defeat. It was a day of victory. And the resurrection proved that, that our God would not be held down. Our God would not be on the losing end. Our God is not the victim of evil and sin. He's the one that's overcome evil and he's overcome sin. And he is going to redeem mankind. That is his plan. Our God is in control. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15 says, And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave all your trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with his obligations that was against us and opposed to us. And he has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. Now look at this. Here's a statement of victory, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disregarded them publicly. He triumphed over them by him. That's what our God did. <clears throat> I want you to stand with me. At the end of Revelation, or in the middle of Revelation as we're <clears throat> seeing what will occur. Revelation 12, verse 10 through 11 says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah have now come because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown out, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. They, who is us as God's people, conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives in the face of death. How do we overcome the lamb? Excuse me, how do we overcome the enemy? How do we overcome the, the accuser? We've done it because of what Jesus did for us. We did it because he, he laid down his life on the cross and he reconciled God with man. He became our sacrifice. He became our ransom. He paid the price for us. And now, because Jesus paid the price, how many know we have a testimony? How many know we have a story? This is not just something passive in history. This is alive in our hearts. Our God is alive. Our God is victorious. And we celebrate the cross, not as an empty memory, but it is a reality today. Our God is alive. He's King of Kings. He's Lord of Lords, he is redeeming the world for him. And he's causing all things to come together under him. And that's who he is. And we love him for it. I want us to pray together.